And open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22, verse 1. We're in a series on Abraham and Sarah walking by faith. Last week we looked primarily at uh, Abraham here in these same verses. This week we'll bring Isaac more into the picture. Genesis 22, verse 1. This is the word of God. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went, went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. He said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb for burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place which God had told them, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold... Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. And join me, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to your word this morning. And fathers, we come to the table. We ask for your spirit's help to take the truth that you're teaching us here. Father, apply it to our hearts. Father, encourage us with it, we pray. Strengthen us with it, we pray. Uh, And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The question burns in Isaac's mind for three days as he trudges through Canaan with his father. And now they leave the servants and the donkey behind. And he finally asks the question, which seems also obvious. With the wood bundled on his own back and his father carrying the knife and a torch, he knows something's missing that's needed for worship. You see, he's done this with his father before. He knows what it takes. Well, he does not think it's an inappropriate question. His father's stoic-like silence on the entire trip makes him cautious. Finally... My father, yes, my son, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Now, Abraham, for his part, had anticipated the question, but really didn't know for sure what he would say when Isaac asked. He's gone over several answers in his mind, and now the moment's arrived, he says this, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Well, Isaac certainly probably heard it that way with, with, with a comma, as we would put it. Uh, 
change the punctuation, which is not present in Hebrew at any rate at all, uh, change it from a comma to a colon, and as R.C. Sproul says, hear it this way, God will provide for himself a burnt offering, my son. The words do not flow easily off of Abraham's lips. So they head on together to the land or the region of Moriah, the place of sacrifice. Takes us not just to a mountaintop, but to the very summit of human emotions, as we saw last week. There, in the greatest test of obedience any mere human being ever had to face, uh, Abraham is to sacrifice his son as a burnt offering. As we discovered last week, Abraham was obedient. His heart held nothing back from God, even his son, his only son Isaac, whom he loved. Only the last second cry of the angel of the Lord, Jesus himself, the Son of God, the Father from heaven, stopped Abraham. Jesus told him, now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. But friends, there's more here than just Abraham's incredible obedience, faith, and love. There is God's directing a divine drama of the greatest story ever, the story of the greatest sacrifice of all, that of the Lamb of God, the one of whom the choirs of heaven sing with great rejoicing and, and, and adoration. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, uh, the Son who was obedient to the Father. So to develop the picture and apply it to our lives, let's go to the text as we come to the table. Start with verse 2, offering there is a burnt offering. Now we've got to remember the purpose of a burnt offering. There's a lot of symbolism, but just three things we'll point out for this morning. The first is it reminds us of the reality of Romans 3.23 and 6.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. The burnt offering reminds the person offering the sacrifice that his or her sin has completely separated them from fellowship with God. And the penalty for this sin is indeed death. Friends, that's how offensive all our sin is to God. Uh, we cannot gloss over it. And the Old Testament people of God, as they made their sacrifices, they had it impressed on their minds again and again and again. They've sinned against God, and they deserve death. The second thing that stood out was the requirement of the shedding of blood, in this case, by the animal. Hebrews 9.22 reminds us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Blood has to be shed if sin's penalty is going to be paid. That's because the life is in the blood. And then the third feature is that of substitution. The offer understands that this animal is given as his substitute to take their death penalty. By placing his hand on the head of the animal, the, the, the one making the offering identifies with that animal and signifies that the animal's taken his place in the place of his whole family behind him. And that, the, that the, this animal will now receive the penalty for their sin, even though the animal does not deserve it. And God's wrath and God's punishment towards their sin is then turned away from them when the lamb is slain. So as they walk, Isaac gets it. He and Abraham are sinners, 
and he gets it. He knows sacrifice, he knows blood has to be offered for forgiveness. But what's going to be the substitute? What is going to be the sacrifice? We find the answer down in verse 13 after Jesus instructs Abraham not to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. God reemphasizes here the principle of substitution by providing a lamb for Isaac. I have a suspicion nobody got this better than Isaac, by the way. Um, There's going to be a substitute in God's divine plan. And Abraham anticipates that. So he calls the name of the place, the Lord will provide. And then Moses, under the inspiration of God, adds this. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And so the people of God begin to anticipate that in the mountains of Moriah, God will provide the substitute for us. And that is Jesus. So let's look at the picture. Maybe you've, you've looked at the book or cartoon show or greeting cards. Where's Waldo? I don't know. Uh, and you try to find him in the picture. Well, here there's nothing really hidden from us. We just have to look carefully. Where do we see Jesus here? First, uh, where's the region of Moriah? The next mention of Moriah in the Bible is over in 2 Chronicles 3.1. We read this. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite, the place provided by David. Moriah is the ridge of mountains uh, where present-day Jerusalem was located. So God instructs Abraham to sacrifice Isaac in the same place where the temple will be built in a thousand years. This is the place where God's people for centuries will sacrifice thousands and thousands of animals, of lambs and other animals. This is where Solomon, the dedication of the temple, sacrificed 22,000 cattle and 22,000 sheep and goat. And then notice, Genesis speaks of the land of Moriah. That's what the region's called. And so it includes a hill just outside the old city wall of Jerusalem called Golgotha, where nearly a thousand years after the first temple was built, Jesus is crucified. So the scene of the crucifixion is therefore tied with the side of the temple and with the place where Abraham is offered, offers up Isaac. The second part of the picture to see is the strong affection between Abraham and Isaac. God reminds Abraham throughout the passage of Abraham's feelings for Isaac. Verse 2, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Now this is the first time the word love is used in the Bible. It's used to describe the the love of a father for his son. That's an incredible love. As parents, we can identify with this, whether we're a mother or a father, whether we're a child or children or girls or boys. We have strong affection for our children, love, that's, that's difficult to describe. And then we go over to the New Testament, and we find similar language. 
At the baptism of Jesus, we find in Matthew 3.17, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, we read in Matthew 17, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In Matthew 26, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, my father. There's a tremendous affection between God the Father and God the Son. It's a love that's existed for all of eternity, eternity past to eternity future. The father was never emotionally detached from his son and nor Jesus from the father. And so the cross is not just a business transaction. The cross is a personal thing. We need to see that what's going to happen on the cross is just as painful for God the Father as it would have been for one of us to watch our son or our daughter die there. Indeed, we sang last week how deep the Father's love. The third thing to see is the privacy of the transaction. I really doubt Abraham told Sarah ahead of time what God had commanded him. I'm pretty sure of that. I'm certain he did not tell his servants Verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I'm the boy. will go over there and worship and come back again to you. See, this was intended to be a private moment between the father and his son. There was to be no intrusion on it from anybody else. And so we come to the New Testament. We read in Matthew 27. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over all the land until the ninth hour. See, God covered the last three hours that Jesus hung on the cross in darkness. And he did it to make it a private transaction between him and his son as he pours out his wrath on our sin. Friends, we're so mistaken if we think we play some role in our salvation. We have nothing to do with it. Jesus did everything for us. And then what he does is he offers it to us as a free gift, which we accept simply by believing that what Jesus did was indeed for me. We do not earn salvation by anything we do. Jesus did it all for us in a private transaction with his Father. Friends, that humbles us greatly. And it brings us to the fourth thing. And that is the picture of a willing sacrifice. So how old do we, we picture Isaac being here? A lot of times you'll see pictures and in, in Isaac's a small child or a, a young teenager perhaps. Uh, several things suggest that's not the case. I would imagine he's probably around 20. The parameters would be that the age is given for Abraham and Sarah, chapter 21 and chapter 23, means he has to be between the age of 3 and 37. Uh, we do know he's called a boy in this passage, uh, but that's, that term's also used for soldiers in the Old Testament. And the most telling evidence, of course, is verse 6. Abraham carries the knife and the torch, and who do they put the wood on the back of? On Isaac. That would hardly be the arrangement if Isaac were not the stronger of the two physically. So the picture here is of an Isaac who's physically stronger than Abraham, 
a grown man who would be able to resist the action of Abraham if he so desired. He could have overpowered his aged father if he'd wanted to. And the record shows that amazingly he did not. What a great testimony to the way that Abraham had obviously shared his faith with Isaac across the years as he grew up. Which reminds us that we need to share our faith with our children. The Great Commission, it is geographical, friends, but it's generational. We may wonder what went on in verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Do they talk about anything? Does Abraham explain to Isaac why he's doing what he's doing? We simply don't know. Whatever goes on, Isaac cooperates with the father and willingly submits himself to be bound by Abraham and placed on the altar. Friends, that takes incredible obedience, submission, mind-boggling courage, tremendous faith in both Abraham and in God. And friends, understand Isaiah's obedience and his submission and his faith, it's rooted in love. It's rooted in love, not performance. So how does this point to Jesus? Isaiah 53, 7 describes the scene 700 years before it happened. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus says in John 10, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down from my own accord. And Jesus says in Hebrews 10, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it's written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus completely cooperates with the plan of the Father. He's the willing sacrifice in our place. And it's an obedience rooted in love. No greater love is a man than this, Jesus said, that he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus is willing to be placed on the cross. But then the analogy breaks down. Because you see, just the last second, there is a substitute for Isaac. Anticipating, pointing to the day when there would be a final substitute for God's people. Isaac himself is a sinner. And so really, he's not an acceptable offering. For two millennia, from Abraham to Jesus, they offered animal sacrifices that anticipated and pointed to the day when these sacrifices would be made. We read in Hebrews 10.3, And these sacrifices is a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Animal sacrifices by themselves did not solve the problem of sin that separates people from God. But they were always offered in faith that one day God would keep his promise of Genesis 3 and of Genesis 15 and take decisive action and make himself make the final and complete sacrifice for our sins. That on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. And that day finally came. In John 1.29, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and says, Behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Lamb who is to be the final substitute for sinners, for you and for me and for all who trust in Him. This is the willing Lamb of God who's nailed to the cross on Mount Moriah for us. Do you see the picture? What love the Father demonstrates for us this way, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us in our place, took the penalty for our sins. Even as Abraham raised the knife to slay Isaac, God the Father did slay His own Son and poured out on Him the punishment due us for our sins. As Abraham had predicted to Isaac, God provides for Himself the Lamb. He takes care of everything for us through the willing obedience of His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. This obedience is is both a model for us to encourage our love-based obedience, but it's a picture of grace for us and what it costs when we fall. It's love-based forgiveness. So what about us? Today we come to this table that points us to that sacrifice. The body and blood of Jesus is represented by this bread and cup. So we invite all who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are members of good standing of an evangelical church, to come to the table today uh, to help us better understand what Christ has done for us as our substitute. Let me plain, not everybody should come to the table you're not a believer, yet a believer in Jesus. We are so glad you are here to hear the gospel. But to eat of this meal, one must be a believer in the gospel. One must believe that Jesus is the great substitute. He's your substitute. So if you're not yet a believer, let me urge you, do not partake of the meal. But instead, reread Genesis 22. Ask God to show you the wonder of his son. Then let's talk after the service. Likewise, children not yet met with it. Elders to be examined should not partake. But if you're interested in it, please see me. And if we've already received Jesus as Savior and Lord, then I would encourage us to look anew and afresh again this morning at God the Father, who so loved the world that He gave His only Son, His one and only Son, His beloved Son. Jesus is the willing substitute. Loved by the Father, the slain Lamb, who's worthy of all of our wonder and praise so that we would rejoice with those who in heaven today are celebrating around the throne. And we anticipate, friends, one day we will be with them. In the meantime, we need to examine ourselves, given what Jesus did as our substitute out of his love for us. You know, what is my attitude towards my sin? If I've gotten lax in my Christian walk and begun to think somehow... My sin's not a big deal. God really doesn't care about this. I'm not grasping what we've talked about this morning. How serious my sin is and how it separates me from God and the the love God's displayed. I don't want to mock that love. I should not partake. But if I realize I'm in a daily battle against sin and I want strength and I need strength to fight sin, if I need a wonderful reminder of His grace when I stumble then by all means we come and we eat. Let the obedience of Him who gave His life for us strengthen our own obedience. 
Let the grace of the one who died for us give us strength to pick us up when we fall and encourage us to continue the fight of faith. Let me say to those of you watching online, we're, we're sorry you're not able to be here with us, and we long for you to be back with us, um, but you cannot participate in this this morning. But we still would urge you, examine yourself, uh, confess your sins, renew your zeal to follow Jesus. Let's now take a moment to pray, confess our sins before holy God. Father, we've sung this morning our sins, they are many, and oh, are they many. And we acknowledge that. But Father, we've just read, we've just seen, pictured, your mercy is more. Your love is deeper. Your power is greater. And so, Father, through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, the penalty for our sins has been paid. Father, may we rejoice in that now. That when we confess our sins, you're faithful, you're just, you forgive us our sins, you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you, Father, for the Lamb that was slain for us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.